0: Enter the creative world with FjorgCast. Explore a variety of trends in the creative landscape, getting insider knowledge and advice from the industry's best. Fjorg is proud to present FjorgCast with host Tim Barsness. Thanks for joining us on FjorgCast. I'm Tim Barsness, founder of web and mobile development team Fjorg. And today on our show, we will be talking with David Langton about his digital branding agency, Langton Creative Group. Welcome to the show, David. Hello, it's nice to be here. We're glad you can make it. Uh, David, can you tell us a little bit about the Langton Creative Group?
1: Well, the Langton Creative Group is based in New York City. We have been here for 22 years. Um, and we started as a, as a group that really wanted to do branding and started in the old world of, of graphic design but have transitioned into digital marketing methods.
0: Um, I understand, based on the name, that you're founder of the company? I
1: am the founder,
0: yes. It wasn't 22 years. 22 years, quite a run. Yes, Can you uh, share a little bit about how you came to found the Langton Creative Group?
1: Well, I always wanted to uh, run on my own design firm. So it was it was always kind of a, a passion of mine to do graphic design and to be able to work with people that I want to work with and do the work that we want to do. And I think that's something that we've been able to do over the last 22 years is, is work with people who we mutually want to work with.
0: And how do you, how do you know um, when you meet someone or what is the process to understand whether you want to work with them or not?
1: You know, that's a tough question, but I think that what happens is we always encourage people to look at our portfolio and look at the kind of work that we do. Uh, not that we want you to look like our work, but we want you to know that this is the caliber of work and the style of work that you can expect from a firm like ours. We also think it's really important that we have a conversation where we talk about What is it that you're looking for in a design partner what are you trying to achieve and through that conversation we we learn about each other and i learn about them and they learn about the kind of questions that i ask and the kind of work that i would want to do for them
0: how big is the team today uh there's five of us um and 22 years ago when you founded the company what was the um what was the vision for where you were going
1: well, I founded the company 22 years ago with Norman Cherubino, and there were two of us. We were both RISD graduates. We had worked about five years in the industry in New York for various entities, small studios, and I actually worked at Home Life Insurance Company, where I was the manager of graphic design. So I had a sense of what it was like to be on the corporate side. Uh, we used to start by saying that uh, we finished each other's sentences. We had that kind of a partnership. So that was, that was the beginning of the um, process. But we shared values. We shared the fact that we both wanted to do good work at a fair price. And that was an important part of our process. It wasn't like uh, we we came from the same background. Got it. Very cool.
0: Um, so at some point, uh, your partner separated off?
1: Yes. Norman left about two years ago to pursue his own things. And I continued the firm. And at this point, we've actually gone more digital. So that was one of the things that we want to do in the last couple of years, more website development, more social media work. Uh, that's something that's become a real passion of mine. Got it.
0: And what, what about what is it about websites, digital work, that um, that you're so passionate about?
1: Well, I think it's really interesting that you can take the, the basic brand principles that work, whether you're in print or whether you're um, experiential in a sign or an, ex- or an exhibit, and, and apply it to a digital world. Everything is digital first, uh, mobile first. Uh, you know, when I talk to my kids about what's going on in the world, it's, it all has to do with what's online. So I want to be, you know, be there because that's where the communication is happening.
0: Got it. Um, and can you tell me a little bit about the transition to go from what it sounds like was a more, um, more traditional or print, um, print design group um, or brand design group to uh,
1: a digital group? Well, you know, what I think is really interesting is that the core precepts of design, which are sometimes called design thinking, are the same. Uh, When we start to pick apart what's happening today in the digital world, or you look at some of the leading companies that are in the digital space, companies like Airbnb, which are founded by graphic designers, you start to see that the process that we learned at school, you know, 25 plus years ago, is a process that's still valid in the digital space.
0: Got it. Can you maybe explain a little bit about what that
1: process looks like? Well, part of the process is just looking at, you know, it starts with, you know, in a formal sense, empathy. So when I say when I meet with somebody first, I'm trying to get an understanding of where they are with their brand and with their product or service and where they want to be. So a lot of it is identifying with the client in their challenge to meet usually their client. A lot of it's B2B, so I'm working with a client who has to reach another client. So the first process is always empathy and then it turns into a, a problem solving process. How can we solve the problem now that we understand you and your marketplace and focus on your client together? And that's really where design thinking comes into, into play.
0: Do, um, do most of your clients kind of understand that process when they come to you or is that something that, that you end up explaining to them throughout the process?
1: I think it's a mix. I think there's a a natural tendency to understand the whole empathetic approach, but I think what is undersold in graphic design is the ability to solve problems. There's still a great bias against the fact that people just think it's all about looking good and visuals and style and certainly visuals and style are part of the process, but that's not the end game. And that's not even the core beginning game. We really need to find out what the precepts are that you're trying to achieve and the themes that you want to articulate before we can start picking up our pencils and drawings or going to our computer screens. And I think that that still gets lost. I think there's just a bias against design. People think it's easy because they see it everywhere. They don't understand what the thought that goes into it. That sounds unfair. <laughs> yeah, well, it, that's the challenge too.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, and I think, you know, those, those Critics or those people who think it's easy, um, everything seems easy if you don't know the work that goes into it, and those people probably haven't haven't actually designed something effectively before.
1: Well, it's true, because even something as simple as, as filming a video and watching it be filmed 20 times to get that right moment that you can edit into essentially what's a 20 or 30 second video, it's a lot more work intensive than, than you would know if you didn't do it. Right.
0: So let's go back to uh, David 22 years ago, um, who it sounds like was was working at a corporation and decided to um, take on a partner and start his own uh, design firm. Um, what, what was going through your head at that time?
1: Well, it's interesting because there was a little bit of a, a step in between. I was at the corporation. I left the corporation to go work for another designer where I was going to be the creative director. and. I got this weird sense like the first day on the job, I had no desk, no computer, and I, I wasn't introduced to anybody, and I thought, oh, this is odd, and I started telling everyone I'm the new creative director, and they all nod and go, oh, yeah, sure you are. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, um, this is not starting off the way I thought it would, and uh, about a month in, I realized that this was just a bad fit, that this was not going anywhere, and what I thought was working for someone else was giving me some security. And I realized when I was at this place, I had no security. So I thought, well, if I'm not going to have any security, I might also do this by myself. Interesting. And that's what kind of led me to go off on my own. And then uh, when I was able to land a large project, I needed help getting it done. And then I reached out to a colleague of mine, Norman, and said, hey, we could do this together. And we did, and that was our first project together. And then about a year later, we said, hey, let's make this official. And we became partners.
0: Got it. So when you started, did you have a backlog of work or um, did you, was your first step to go find something to do?
1: Well, I started with, I had one project, which was an annual report, which was a big project back then. So I had a project to start on. But what I've learned over and over again is that there's no guarantees. And so you have to continually be looking for the next project. So no matter how long you've been in business, you can't just focus on the project that's in front of you. You have to always be planning ahead.
0: Isn't that, do you find that extremely
1: challenging? Yes. <laughs> I, I wish it wasn't, but it is. It's, it's always challenging. But it's also it's inter- part of the whole process of, of always looking ahead.
0: Totally. It's, it's interesting. Um, w- when you said that, one of the things that I thought about is uh, the only thing more important than
1: the project you're working on is the project you're going to be working on next. It's true. And sometimes, I mean, I remember starting off thinking that I was only really working when I was working on a graphic design project. And you know, I've totally changed that. Now it's like, no, you know, doing sales, doing a, a really good blog post that promotes your organization, that's work too. And you know, it's not just design, it's the whole process of running the business that's part of the job.
0: Right. Are you still um are you still creative director as well? Yes. Got it. Very cool. Um all right. So let's transition into a little bit more uh, about the team and, and um what you guys do. Um, how you do it so well so what makes your team truly
1: unique? Well one is that my design director Jim Keller has been with me for over 15 years so we have this very tight relationship in terms of understanding how we work together and, and a real comfort and that you know Jim is super reliable and we know what we can expect from each other So we can kind of like egg each other on to do better work, understanding that everything we do here has a certain standard. And there's a process for how work comes through. So when a project begins, uh, we will do a deep dive research into the project and we all work on that together. And then we break out, we call it kind of working together, working apart. So we'll work together on establishing what the core project is all about. And then we separate, go our own way, brainstorm, sketch, do some personal research, and then get back together again and do like almost like mini crits. So it's pretty much like you would in, in school in the sense that there's a lot of critiquing, but you're all working on the same project together. You're not competing. Got it, interesting. And w- what is the outcome from that? Uh, lots of crazy ideas in the, in the, in the initial process. Uh, and what we like to do is invite our clients in to see what we call a sketching session. So we will take the work that's not final and categorize it, present it in a logical manner, but we'll show them a lot more than like three to five logos. We will actually show them walls full of creative concepts and different ways that they can think about their brand. Very cool. And, and how is that typically received? Oh, it's it's usually great because the clients come in, they have coffee and, uh, you know, maybe some donuts and muffins and we kind of sugar them up a little bit and they get a sense of what the process is like because we're thinking about their their product or their service or their company in a way that they haven't really thought of uh, I sometimes equate it to like a therapy session because what happens is you trigger a lot of things that the client may have been thinking about and they come out in the process because when you're designing an identity or a brand for somebody what you're really doing is reflecting what their future is going to be And so it starts to reflect on them like, oh, I don't know if I want to go that way, or maybe I do, or you hit some spots. And that's part of the process, because you want to make sure that whatever identity or brand that you develop really resonates with them personally. Sure.
0: I know um, for us, a lot of times... uh, the most challenging client is the one who says well I'll know what I want when I see it um, and they struggle to dis- describe it and I've, I've fallen into that category unfortunately on creative projects at times I'm curious how you deal with that
1: well we try to present concepts on a, on a visual basis but also on an intellectual basis and we do ask for our clients to go through an exercise of answering questions and a little mini survey that we do so that we've established a creative brief so that when you evaluate a brand or a communication project, you go back to the brief and say, how does it meet these four or five things that we agreed on before we started the project? Now, they can change and they can be interpreted, but it gets it away from the I like it when I see it or "you know I have to ask my wife or my, or my partner to weigh in on this because that's not the audience. We also go back to who is your audience? And one of the biggest challenges is telling clients that you are not your own audience because that's the, the, the key. Can you get it a design that's going to meet your audience?
0: That's a good point. I think um, yeah, having, having making sure that the person is willing to uh, to take the authority to make a decision as well. Um, I, that's another thing that we've run into and um, decision makers I, I mean especially design by committee or decision by committee can be extremely challenging.
1: Definitely and a lot of times what we do in that first stage is define who are the decision makers and can we make sure they're in the input session? Because a lot of times what happens is you work with people and then you find out, oh, the CEO is going to stop by and make a decision on Tuesday. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Um, She hasn't been involved in the whole process. That's not a good sign. We need to know who's going to be making the decision so we can tap into their expertise and show them the groundwork that's being done. Can you uh,
0: describe a time when um the, the Langton Creative Group um, created a, uh, I guess, great success
1: uh, with a client. Oh, sure. So uh, one of my favorite projects is a project for Renaissance Capital. And Renaissance Capital is uh, based in Greenwich, Connecticut. They are a research firm that invests in, uh, researches um, IPOs. So they do a lot of research for the financial communities. And they had a logo that was like an old um, English R. And we had to point out to them that, well, that is old, but that's actually what the Renaissance rebelled against. Got it. So we're saying, let's come up with an identity that supports the, the history that you have in your name, but projects forward. And we were struggling with that because we were like, well, why the heck do you call your company Renaissance? Like you're about IPOs, you're about Facebook, you know rolling out and um, eBay and all these new companies that are coming to market. Why are you called Renaissance Capital? And after a few meetings with the principals we were able to understand that they felt that the people who ran Google and eBay and Facebook were the Renaissance people of today. And it was a really important revelation for them that that's why they named their company this way. And then we use that as the inspiration of something that's Renaissance oriented but actually points to the future. And that identity has been very successful for them. So starting with a clear
0: identity um, is important to having a, a solid design.
1: Yeah, well, uh, understanding what the identity is supposed to reflect, because it's also important to understand that your brand lives in the hearts and souls of your audience, not in you. And that, that's a distinction that's important to point out to clients, because that's, we kind of get that from Paul Rand, who always talked about how logos get their meaning from the quality of the thing that they symbolize.
0: Interesting. Uh, let's go
1: into that a little more. What, uh, what does the word brand mean to you? Well, to me, the brand is ultimately what other people think of you. So the, the brand lives in your audience and it's what they think of you and their experience. It's, it's kind of in their minds. And that's, that's a hard thing to tell people because, you know, marketing is me telling you how great I am, and the brand is you thinking, hey, I heard you're really great. <laughs> Love it. Um,
0: so when you have a, um, a solid brand, uh, how do you leverage
1: that to um, create impact? Well, one of the basic things is, is the model of consistency. So how do you promote that brand across all the platforms and channels and places that you are in? So, you know, a simple test that, uh, is does your, you know, branded appearing your business card look like it belongs to the website that you promote? And it seems so basic, but it's amazing how many times that test can't be passed. So, are you consistent in how you deliver information on print, in your signage, in your exhibits, and in the way that you promote your brand? And then, how do you look online? How do you look on social media? Are you consistent visually, but more of the point, are you consistent in the story that you're telling and and how you express your brand? Because it doesn't have to be literally the same logo size in this position in this color. It has to do with how you present your story and how you present your messaging across all these different platforms.
0: Got it. Um, I heard you mention business cards. I'm curious, uh, are you seeing that as things like print cl- collateral um, are... are becoming less and less relevant that the
1: what a brand means is changing? Um, Well I think what a brand means may be changing but you know it's very interesting as the positioning of print is different than it used to be and so there was a a funny example when um, Occupy Wall Street was such a sensation here in Manhattan Uh, all these rallies and all these protest movements one of the things that they did to make themselves more legitimate was put out a newspaper and you wouldn't think that something like that like here is something that's you know kind of a new-age protest going on against the you know the old financial networks but that's what gave them credibility and print still has this credibility factor that online doesn't you know when somebody sends you something in the mail and you open it and look at it 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 might sit on your desk for a couple of days or even be on there for months or weeks an email is gone in a flash and so easy to just get rid of an email so there's definitely a role for email marketing but there's also a role for direct marketing and for you know particularly well put together print pieces. So I think it's important to look at all those things from a branding perspective and make sure your campaign has a little bit of both. Got it, great point. Um, Let's
0: transition into a couple news stories here. We've got uh, two articles both by David. Uh, The first the doctor, a lawyer, and a minister walk into a local development meeting. Uh, David, can you tell us where it goes from there?
1: Yes, I was you know playing on this old joke of a doctor, a lawyer, and a minister and it came from the idea that we've actually worked with all these uh, types of professional groups and they've become archetypes for how you present your work to a client. So what we found is that um, doctors have a, a very difficult idea imagining who you are They're they're really fact-based and they're supposed to be that's why they're doctors so they want statistics that they, they want to know what the proof is and and so that's a certain type of client whether you're a doctor or not there are people within business or within your client range who are going to have that analytical approach uh, lawyers tend to be argumentative, which is you know why my son wants to be a lawyer it's <laughs> and and so there's a lot of back and forth. So when I present to lawyers, you need to have a reason for everything that you just did, and you need to be able to come back at them. It's not a passive process. It's actually a very active process. And then um, ministers, and again, these are kind of cliches, but these are based on true experiences with these groups. And there are types of personalities that fall into these groups. So ministers tend to be more empathetic, and, they, and they're more listening, and they're more you know, hearing and thoughtful, Uh, and they certainly value uh, visuals, but there's a challenge there too because you know sometimes they say uh, having a little bit of knowledge can be even more difficult to work with. So, So go ahead.
0: Does your team um, use these personas as you're thinking about how to work with a potential client even if they're not in these industries?
1: Uh, You know that's a great idea, maybe we should start doing that. Um, We don't particularly use these personas, I mean, the persona names came just as I was reflecting on some past work, but we, when we make a presentation, we make sure to have uh, analytics and reasons and visuals that kind of touch the heartstrings, so we make sure we hit all three of these categories in every presentation.
0: Totally. Great. Uh, our second story also by David, titled The Risks of Toxic Brand Partnerships. Uh, David, I'm curious, uh, can you tell us, give us an example of a toxic brand partnership?
1: Well, I think the, the one that would probably be hitting the news right now is anybody with the Weinstein companies. And uh, one in particular would be Lexus, who has very successfully worked with the Weinstein brothers to produce a series of short films. So you're in this situation that you probably didn't anticipate of being with a toxic brand as your partner. And that's what kind of led to this idea of how do you evaluate your partnerships?
0: Got it. And what, what does your team do to evaluate potential
1: partnerships? Well, I think that a lot of it is it's the same kind of process that you should go to if if you're going to um, make a partnership with somebody. I think a lot of people take the brand partnership part uh, and they don't take it as seriously as they should. And so what I'm talking about in this article is I'm comparing it to when you're getting ready to marry somebody and you really want to make sure you have the same values and that it's a long-term commitment. It's not something you just do for a short period of time. So if a company is going to essentially combine forces in a marketing in a very public way, they should make sure that they share values beyond the immediate sell or the immediate what looks like a great combination.
0: Um, If you're a a corporation considering a partnership or even any group considering a partnership, how how would you go about evaluating uh, the potential partner's values?
1: Well, I think it's actually important that the CEOs get together and actually talk out what their plans are. And you know, when you talk about companies like Starbucks and Barnes & Noble, they have a lot of shared values. And Starbucks actually made sure that if their coffee was going to be sold in Barnes & Noble, that the Barnes & Noble people were willing to train their employees in the Starbucks way because they knew that over the long haul, that if Starbucks stores or even the Starbucks brand is embedded in a Barnes and Noble store, and that store does not act in the proper Starbucks manner, it's gonna hurt their brand all all over the place. And so they had to have that talk and they had to actually have an evaluation process to say, is this who we wanna work with?
0: Do you believe that the uh, Lexus Weinstein situation that you
1: called out was avoidable? Yeah, I do. I think if Lexus sat down and looked at how the Weinsteins have been running their business for a long time and really took a hard look at whether they wanted to have a Hollywood partner, I don't think it actually plays to a long-term dependable brand like Lexus.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we're out of time, so that's it for today on FjordCast. Thanks for being on the show today, David. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Uh, you can reach David by email, uh, david at com, or visit his company website at the same, langtoncreative.com. Uh, thank you to the listeners for joining us on the FjordCast. You can download episodes of the program by going to com slash FjordCast or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and iHeartRadio.